Hello and welcome to our final episode of season one of Little Science Talks. This is episode six. I'm Heidi and I'm the founder of Little Science Co. And in my day job, I work to make clinical trials more inclusive. And I'm Anna, marine biologist, about to start work in the renewable energy advice sector. In season one, we are speaking to scientists from around the world to find out if and how generational influences shape their choices of a STEM career. In our last episode, we spoke to Teresa Crew about her research on class in academia. For our final episode of series one, we're speaking with the fabulous Dr. Marguerite, chemist, UKRI Future Leaders Fellow and self-proclaimed sufferer of imposter phenomena. Remember to follow Little Science Co. on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. All of them are at Little Science Co. And take a look at our lovely new website, including new products over at littlescienceco.com. For now, we hope you enjoyed this episode, the final of our series. And remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast to make sure that you don't miss future episodes and future series. Hello and welcome to Little Science Talks. This is our final episode of season one. And today we are joined by Dr. Mark Reed. Mark, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Heidi. And thanks to you and Anna for having me on. Um, Mark Reed, I'm a UKRI Future Leaders Fellow based at the University of Strathclyde. I'm a chemist by training, as my accent will tell you. I was born and raised in Glasgow. Done most of my training inside academia. Outside of that, I run a small company called Presite Safety for accident readiness and safety culture awareness. And in amongst all the things that I would normally say on my CV, I've, I've failed a ton more than I would normally say out loud to get here. But I thought I would mention that given today's topic of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we do. We love to talk about Tremendous. <laughs> so, yeah, all the time. So, yes, the first the first season of the podcast has been on kind of generational influences in STEM and how people get to STEM and how they feel once they're there. And you came up as someone who... Well, basically, once we got to the end of the series, Anna had said we should have someone on to talk about being an imposter, experiencing being an imposter and that feeling that you always have that every one of our guests has had throughout all of those episodes that we've had so far. And I kind of went away and was like, oh, I'm not really sure. Like, have we heard enough about that? I'm not sure. And then as soon as I thought of it, I was like, no, it's Mark. We need to speak to Mark because I've done your study. (laughs) And it made so much sense. So, yeah, do you want to tell us a bit about the study that I'm talking about? Because I'm guessing it's still running, right? Yeah, uh, we are at this point just about to close everything off and to start to tell the story. But taking one step back to see how it all came around, what I didn't mention in my introduction was that as I was getting to this point in my career, when I moved from my PhD lab at Strathclyde to my postdoc position in Edinburgh, That was really the first time that I had moved away from being intimately involved from one group of colleagues to another. It was the the first big milestone for me in terms of making a move from one professional location to another and from working on one project to another. And it was during that time that I really started to become aware that I was comparing myself a lot more than I used to to other people around me. And it didn't take very many days slash weeks within that new job for me to start to think that I I really did not belong in this new group of people. I didn't feel as qualified as they were to be there. I felt like I didn't know as much and that somehow, some way, the qualifications that I had and the, the certificates that I had in my back pocket were worth 
taken away from me and burning or ripping up or doing something other than being on my person. <laughs> but all of that was completely unnamed and unknown to me before then. And it was over a period of a few years trying to write it down to get it out of my head that I found a lot of this research and work on what had commonly been known as the imposter syndrome. And much later found out that that's completely the wrong way to address it and to name that particular uh, experience. But if you fast forward to now and in the past year and a half now, that what turned out to be a diary evolved into a research project. And the pandemic made that, I dare say, easier to scale because we could then invite a lot of people online through various channels. And almost 900 participants later, we're looking at trying to use the kindness of all those voices that have come forward to understand what are the things that trigger such experiences of feeling like an imposter or where are people feeling this way? Why are they feeling that way? And how do they describe it in their own words? And all of that will come to fruition very soon in the book that I've been writing that tells all of that story from the first time I ever felt that seedling of self-doubt all the way through to what we've found in this research project now. It's amazing, like that whole journey of kind of going from moving out of one relatively comfortable situation yeah. where you know everyone and you know all those colleagues they get you they've watched you get your qualification and you feel kind of yeah okay I feel all right here I know what's going on I get the power dynamics I understand the politics all that kind of thing absolutely and then bringing that full circle into how can how can this experience be captured for other people as well and I think when I'd seen the study online it was on Twitter and it had sort of gone I guess like semi-viral because you were giving people like a, a score for their own imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon. We'll talk about yeah. that in a minute. <laughs> Everyone was then looking at it and going, well, I want to know what my score is. If that's what your score is, what's my score? Exactly. And then it was all, it was almost like a, a weird like comparison of imposterness. <laughs> and then I would like, so I saw a friend get her score and I think she was like 75% or something. And then I did it and mine was 80 something percent. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> I'm more of an imposter than she is oh wait no just is that a good thing is that a bad like and then we start with this weird like this is I'm I'm a higher level of imposter and that means what and then you start with this like whole trickle down thing so I thought I like we had this conversation with her and I was like I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing am I more equipped or less equipped or like all these different things kind of spin off but that for me anyway as someone who does clinical trial recruitment that was a magical magical way to get people involved in your study just to give them a bit of information to then go oh I want that bit of information too and it kind of spiraled well I um, it's very intriguing actually listening back to this this is some of the first information I've had from someone <laughs> who's actually taken part and and looked at it from the point of view of the mechanism of the study itself growing and um, I'll shamelessly say that that part of it was entirely by design of course there yeah. are a few ways yeah. to get you know, that many people to come forward for a single study other than to do that. But, you know, it's um, given people that first piece of awareness of them to go and find out more themselves. And just as you said, it's that mechanism of sharing it between people that then gets the conversation started. And of course, in turn for this particular study, brings more people forward. And 
we were mentioning, it's, it's sort of hopelessly meta and, and ironic in a way that throwing out these numbers makes people compare themselves more to one another. And that's one of the things that we're worried about with imposter experiences. But it's worth at this point now that we've mentioned it saying what that is. So the number that you've mentioned, be it 75 or 83 or whatever it is, when I first did it, that number for me was, I think, 71. But the number itself is based on a well-known scale to describe imposter experiences known as the, the Clance imposter phenomenon scale. So there's two interesting parts of that. Clance refers to Pauline Rose Clance, who was the first psychologist and academic, along with her research partners, to coin the term imposter phenomenon, not imposter syndrome, which is something you'd alluded to earlier. And I've been digging and digging and digging, and I can't quite pin down exactly when the change was made. But those who coined this whole umbrella of experiences never ever intended for it to be called a syndrome. And in fact, it's a complete misnomer to say so, because syndromes are more specifically defined for something that is more niche and diagnosable, whereas the imposter phenomenon can come in several different guises. It's not one size fits all for everyone who's ever felt that way. There are a, a series of commonalities that all of the individual stories that you'll hear will very rarely be the same. And even before we get to what the scores means them, themselves, in the process of trying to research it, to then write about this in, in my book, what was I came across something that I think had only maybe had a few views online, but it was a, a plenary lecture that Pauline Clance was giving to um, an American graduate class. And it's one of the only times I've seen said out loud by Pauline herself, and I haven't seen written down in many other places where she went even further than phenomenon and said, if I had to do all of this again, and this is 30 years after she'd originally coined the term, she wouldn't even call it phenomenon, she would call it experiences, imposter experiences, just to make it more plain and more clear that this is something that shouldn't have the dark cloud of the word syndrome over it. Societally, in terms of social networking, there's probably something in there where syndrome made for a better headline, or it's an easier thing to say than phenomenon. It'll be something as trite as that, I believe. That's my, my suspicion at this point, but just haven't pinned it down. But anyway, rabble aside, onto the scores themselves. That Clance imposter phenomenon uh, scale quite intuitively ranges from zero to 100. It's a series of 20 questions uh, asking a, an open fashion certain elements of what would be defined within the imposter experience. And anyone who takes that test will rank a statement that they read from one to five depending on how much they agree with that statement. All those scores get added together up to 100. If it's closer to zero, it's highly unlikely that you've ever felt imposter experiences. It's just not part of your daily life or things that you've encountered. Of course, as you move up towards 100, that means that these experiences are ever more common, severe, chronic, uh, and intense. And so it's a, it's a good way to walk through the door of more details on the whole experience to say, like, put a wet finger in the air and say, roughly, where might I lie on this scale? Now, it's important to note that that's not the be all and end all, but it's a really good way to get people to start to think about it. It is. It's a really, um, it's something that I had 
like taped up on a notice board by my desk when when we were in the office in the before times <laughs> I had it taped up because I was like look it's a constant reminder that what you're feeling probably isn't what's actually happening here and at some point it felt really comforting to know that to be like look this is just you feeling like you're not good enough or like you I don't know like your experience isn't as valid as the person sat next to you and you know in the other desk or whatever and it made me then question those feelings more often in a really positive way I think to be like look actually you can do this you're doing it now like you're sat at this desk at the same desk as the person next to you with the same laptop and and you're doing it so let's just forget that feeling for a minute let's just park it and try and get over it and I think so many people in STEM particularly younger people coming in that haven't had a STEM background in their families and stuff yeah that feeling is is quite constant as we've seen through the last five episodes of different stories and stuff from from people and it is something that I think just kind of becomes like part of your everyday because you just think well surely everyone feels like this and then as soon as you realize they don't it's like oh wait what what are you yeah. what are you talking about you don't feel like this I thought we all did I thought we were all just pretending that we knew what we were doing at this point yeah there's there's so much of that that resonates but I think first and foremost there's a real dichotomy and and what you've said and that there's times where you can feel like you're the only person in the world who's ever felt like that and other times where you're desperately seeking everyone else to have felt that because that was I think one of the biggest sides of relief on my side was I was trying to find other stories not necessarily academic literature or anything like that to do with the imposter phenomenon or experiences but rather more detailed stories of those who'd had their own run-ins with it and and how they had firstly recognized it the way that you've so nicely put there for your own experience but then how they've learned to and I use these words carefully now manage it the other thing I heard and what you've just said Heidi I think is really intriguing about all of this is that I've found that there is a a temptation, I think, in all of us to use terms like overcome it or crush it or cure it or destroy it or smash <laughs> it or whatever you like. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear what you both think about that. In all of this time that I've been studying it and trying to figure it out for myself, I found that increasingly unhelpful and not really the best frame in which to give yourself the tools to recognize it and, and manage it. I've heard several different ways of people talking about this. One that I've heard from um, an entrepreneur called Peter Shepard is that uh, he dances with his, he calls it his imposter two-step, where it's it's <laughs> something that's always there. It's, a, it's an old friend to recognise and live with. But you will set yourself up for disappointment or I dare say some form of relapse into the worst instances of your experience if you go in with the assumption that it can be completely quashed? Completely. I think that's part of the the conscious change from syndrome to phenomenon as well, because to me, a syndrome is, I don't even know if this is like scientifically accurate, but to me, a syndrome is more of like a lifelong thing that you live with. And I, I think my conscious change to phenomenon is, it's not going to be in every interaction that I have. It's not going to be in every experience that I have because it, it's something that is more fleeting than a syndrome for example I know that's just like a cognitive shift for myself rather than any kind of actual science behind it I was also thinking is it perhaps sometimes healthy to have some level 
of imposter phenomena, like to a point. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah well, maybe that that's a good point to begin to to break down some of the things that are involved in an imposter's experience, bringing together several different iterations of what the definition is. It, it's it's often more helpful actually to start with what it's not. The imposter experience is not plain lack of self-esteem. That is an overlapping but different experience. One of the key things that sets the imposter experience apart is that it happens in high achieving people who have worked very hard, who have some qualification or credential or, or status that evidences very plainly that they belong where they are and that they've they've put in the work they've paid the dues to be able to say I'm qualified to do this. But despite all of that hardcore evidence, then they still have these thoughts of recurring thoughts of self-doubt and feelings of being a fraud or a phony and a constant sense, more or less, that one day you're going to be found out and chucked out of your job. So it's a it's a good point of distinction to say, well, what isn't it? To then think about, well, what it is. And the main thing is that it's amongst high-achieving people. It's a feeling of being a fraud, even although all of the evidence says otherwise. But getting to the really intriguing point that Anna's raised about what might be positive elements of the imposter experience there's several different ways I've tried to break it down when I've been writing about it and and one thing that I'll maybe come back to at the end is uh, a chapter I've written entirely about comparisons and I think therein is probably the answer to Anna's question that there are elements of comparison that are fundamentally positive and part of the human condition you know we've all heard, I dare say, you know, similar terms or phrases along the lines of, you know, you never want to be the smartest person in the room because you're not going to get any smarter doing that <laughs> uh, yeah, if you are the completely. smartest person in the room. So there's, you know, there's, you know, bodies of psychology and social comparison theory that emerged in the 1950s as far as, uh, as my reading has led me to understand that show you being able to compare yourself to someone not so far ahead of you you know, within your sights, someone who's got the next level, you know, is at the next rung on the ladder, has the next badge on their belt, someone who's ahead of you, but tangibly close so that you can take steps in their direction. That's a positive element of social comparison. That's, um, you know, what I've heard termed like an upward driver towards your success. Um, and, and there's a lot of distinction between you know, you can talk about that in terms of skills and also talk about that in terms of opinions, which takes you into a whole rabbit hole of group thinking and stuff like that. But that part of it, being able to compare yourself to others around you who are at your skill level or just above, gives you that push, that momentum to take yourself up to those higher benchmarks. Where it goes awry is if when you start to compare yourself constantly with really shaky foundations. Uh, and making really abrupt, foundless conclusions about your worth versus someone else's or your qualifications versus someone else's. So it's a really blurry line between the positive parts of comparison and the much darker, I dare say, more common 
elements of comparison that are associated with imposter experiences. Absolutely. And those, the positive ones can, can be so positive in that you can, you know, you then have this plan on how to advance your career or, you know, learn how to do something new and all those positive things that you want to come out of them. And then these shaky foundational ones can be so damaging to the point where they can actually like, I guess, crush the rung that you're already on and move you down the ladder rather than pushing you to to rise up it. The million dollar question. How how do you manage it, live with it, <laughs> <laughs> dance with it, whatever else you're going to do with it? Well, uh, one of the things we've spoken a lot about already is the awareness of it. So if you assume that you've got to that stage already, then there's, there's a number of um, known things that you can do and a number of things that I've found in addition that I've, I've decided to write about. One of the things up front that I mentioned in my own experience, which I found later actually to be pretty highly uh, and broadly recommended is to document both in terms of a journal or a diary, you know, to, to play out on pen and paper what your experiences have been. But also, in addition to that, document the successes that you've had. And I don't simply mean, you know, the brightest lines on your CV that are, you know, the accolades and the degrees that we normally assume needs to be on a CV, but also the successes of the times that you've faced a failure or maybe even repeated failure and found a way to move on past that and to have another crack at the whip or, or another go at a particular goal. So being able to document things both in terms of just a, a diary level experience, but also to write down what all those successes are, gives you more and more and more of that sort of evidence that imposters stereotypically will try to ignore so that they downplay success. You know, downplaying success is another major characteristic of imposter experiences and documenting as much as you possibly can is one of the the finest tools that I think anyone has to be able to live with it and manage it without going down too many different rabbit holes at once. If I force myself to think about some of the other things that in the course of my own journey that have made a profound impact on my ability to manage it, I could tell you a little bit about a story of my first child, my daughter's christening or naming day as it was for us. And rather than having thank you cards and stuff like that for those who were kind enough to attend, then what I decided to do was to share with them a letter that I wrote for my daughter that she won't see until she's 10 or 12. Just like punched the microphone because I was just going, oh. Please, Heidi, if you cry, I will certainly dissolve oh, into my own puddle of tears. So I'll try, I'll try not to. But the point of this story is that in that letter, I've, and I don't have it to hand to read it out, but I'm, I'm thankful because I would cry. Yeah, I would fall. <laughs> it's like, by the way, <laughs> he, he he giggles, taking deep breaths to continue this story. Um, <laughs> the the contents of that letter were a, a form of words to impress upon her that there is an absolute unlikeliness of her ever being full stop the ways in which you can quantify someone's likeliness of ever being alive are take you to numbers that are so large as to be stupid and 
and incomprehensible to us mere humans. But there are ways in which you can start from you and the story of your parents and their grandparents. And as you continue to dig further and further back, if you put a concerted effort in, you will find the stories of happenstance, luck, that meant that you were, and instead of never being at all, so much of that in everyone's life that I think if everyone had even a small taste of that, they would take on far more risk and not self-sabotage as much as many of us are tempted to do. So I wrote that for her because it came out of my own reading and attempts to bring it into my own life. And I had found it actually for uh, around the time that she was born when she met my grandfather, her great-grandfather, and it wasn't long before he passed away, but that just having, I've got one photograph of them together, and I was like, my God, this is two pairs of eyes, four generations apart, looking at one another right now. And the amount that's happened in order to be able to have that little baby held in those elderly arms is incredible. And in the case of my grandparents, you know, to give you a little bit of the flavour of Glasgow, they came from opposite ends of the Catholic Protestant divide, such that when they got married, you know, large proportions of their families didn't even attend the wedding. And so, you know, in my case, there's a story of thinking, had they not overcome that social hurdle for them, I never would have been, never my my daughter. And so all of that plays out for everyone's family. And so, you know, as well as documenting your daily experiences of feeling like an imposter and documenting your successes, you know, be they accolades or ways to move past failure, you can document the story of you and how you ever came to be. And it's so much more likely that you weren't, that it becomes much easier to say, sod it, I'm, I'm going to give this thing a go. Yeah, because yeah. there's so many other people that aren't here <laughs> that that might have done it, but I am here and I can try it. Mad, isn't it? Yeah, it resonates kind of with when I'm scared to do something. I think, or you know, I compare myself to other people, like say in my class or whatever. And then I think that you know, all of these people are here at random. You know, had I moved or you know somewhere else, have I had I chosen a different university? These people. I wouldn't know they existed and I would be faced with other random strangers around me. So in yeah. a sense, it doesn't you know, really matter who's around you as long as you're kind of securing yourself. Does that make sense? Well, do, yeah. It completely makes sense. Is, there, is there anything specific on your mind at the moment? Is there, are you toying with the idea of trying something new? Not, not at the moment, <laughs> but it's just come up, you know, throughout my childhood when I was a, like, I used to compete in swimming okay. and that kind of helped, you know, before say a competition that these people are actually random, you know, around me, they've all worked hard, but I've also worked hard. It's kind of a way of self distancing, like yourself from the situation and, and kind of what you're saying that you're here as well. You deserve to be here too. Yeah. The randomness of it. I love that. I love it's that. just random, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that That is actually, that's, that's a better way to put it than parts of what I did. Like I think oh, no. summing it up in the randomness, <laughs> the randomness is actually a really nicely distilled way of 
know, coming to terms with some of those really large numbers that I mentioned that I didn't actually say anything specific, but, you know, one of the estimates I've seen is that everyone's chances of being here is something like 400 trillion to one. And so it is indeed essentially random, to put it in, in your term. It's crazy, isn't it? Like that level of, yeah, randomness. Like how, why Why is it you? Why is it me? What, like all of these things that you just end up with this, like you end up down this philosophical rabbit hole of what is the world and how are we all here? <laughs> but yeah. it also ends up being like a, we're so tiny in this massive world. Like I took the dog for a walk yesterday and we were in the woods these huge, huge trees and this teeny little terrier walking ahead of me. <laughs> and I, I stood back and I was like, oh, I'm going to get a picture. And Cameron's like, my partner, he's like, why? Because he just looks tiny. And he was like, why, <laughs> why is that a good thing? I was like, he just looks like a little dot and I love it. And then, but the whole reason was that it made me feel like he's so tiny and I'm so tiny. And what's like, there's no, there's no th- such thing as failure really, is there? Because we're so small that it's comparative and that what is failure? Like you don't get a job or you don't get, something else like fine there's loads of other opportunities so remembering that and having something physical that you can then look at and go oh yeah I actually like none of none of these failures or errors or poor circumstances or whatever actually like matter that much do they because we're all so teeny that does it really matter do do we matter what I mean (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. as long as you don't go so far as to have an existential crisis then you can do something with that like with how wonderfully ridiculous it all is and you know you the tininess of your dog against the trees reminds me of another version of that that's fairly well known is the great science communicator and astrophysicist Carl Sagan had this um speech about the pale blue dot it was about when one of the early satellites was turned back at the edges of the solar system to point towards us and you know on the tiniest parts of the sub pixels that were on the rings of saturn or something like that you could see the blue hue of the planet earth and to him that was the pale blue dot and there's a beautiful speech that i would highly recommend that everyone looks up and there's lovely lines in it, you know, to do with, you know, that's where, you know, that's where every king and queen has ever been born. It's, you know, it's the only home we've ever known. And it was at the time, you know, just a really profound statement about all of the silliness that we involve ourselves with. And few people until that moment had ever had the chance to set the perspective of looking at this tiny little dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, Every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is that level of perspective is needed by a lot of people 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like some people, you're just like, all right, calm down. Like get off Facebook. Maybe spend some time outside. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that level of perspective is something that we're all kind of when you get into those, you get into those moments in your head where you're like, you know, I don't belong here and all that kind of thing. And then as soon as you realize the, that level of perspective, you're like, no one belongs here. What is a room? How are we in a house? Like, you know, like all these different things where you're just like, what? What is the point? It's fine. Everything is fine. There's there's nothing. Yeah. We can we can only get to certain levels of importance. And even then, we're still going to be a little dot. So what's what's the issue? Yeah, the, the perspective part of it, linking in with other parts of imposter experiences, that all of that sort of bled into other thoughts of, for example to take the comparison thing one step further, looking at all of the metrics with which we busy ourselves. And it's not particular to academia, but you know many of those listening to this will be in academia and will know immediately what I'm talking about in terms of you know number of citations and impact factors of journals and things like that. And you know, a lot of these things, to cut a, a long story short, you know, a lot of these things matter to the point that it's, the difference between putting food on the table or not for some people they'll think about it so deeply and that's the way that they've you know allowed themselves to be fully judged for for promotion or longer term employment or what have you and there's versions of that uh, and many a different discipline that if you have that broader perspective on you know your place in all of this to use another term that Anna brought up earlier it is a really good way with which to distance yourself from it um, another way you can do that is actually to find out the origins of a lot of these numbers um, with which we dress ourselves. And like, one of the things I like, researched quite heavily that I've, I've written on the comparisons chapter in my book was about the culinary world and um, high-end cuisine, gourmet cuisine, the world of the Michelin star. And the origins of that are so so far removed from what it now means to hold a Michelin star that there's many a chef out there who have gone so far as to to kill themselves that had they known the story of just where these numbers came from, that they would have put the experience in an entirely different frame. And I, I hate to say it, but there's so many tragic stories like that, both in that world and academia and beyond, where just that knowledge of what these numbers actually mean to have a distance from it and to have a perspective of the bigger picture. Things could have been so different for so many. Yeah. And I do think as well, things like that, they're all they're put into perspective again, that word perspective, but by events that often we either we're distanced from naturally or that are just happening to us and that we don't have a control over. So COVID, for example, suddenly everyone was much more understanding of each other because they could see what was happening in other people's lives. Like before people had kind of figured out that they should probably be putting a blurry background on their Zoom call, <laughs> you know, their cat or their baby was wandering past, you know what I mean? And suddenly everyone was like, oh, it's fine. You can show me your dog or it's fine. You can, you know, the baby's crying. It's all right. Just put it on mute. It's fine. The baby? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a Zoom call. Just to be clear, I don't, want, I don't want letters from people telling me to mute the baby. But yeah, so lots of those, lots of those experiences tended to, it made, they made people kinder, I think, in a working environment. And suddenly everyone was much more understanding of, oh, you haven't been able to write because, you know, there's a freaking pandemic going on. Of course you can't write. Of course you can't concentrate. That's okay. And it, and it is these kind of bigger things that happen around us. And it's often after that that people are like, oh, we should have, 
we should have been more understanding before that thing happened, that awful thing happened. And it does, it takes people, whether it's suicide, whether it's, you know, whatever horrible tragedy is happening to people, it then takes people afterwards to say, oh, we should have done that thing earlier and let them know about this or told them how much we cared. And, you know, at funerals, it's always, I wish I'd said this to them or, you know, all these different avenues that you then change. And it's kind of like, well, why didn't, why didn't we do it before? What, what is it about that? Yeah. massive environment you know that massive shift that that makes all of the things that we wish we'd done happen or you know we would be so happy to then do them yeah i'd i'd, I'd actually come across a, a work of a guy called uh, an academic in the states called adam alter i think some of his more recent research has actually been based on end of life reflections and the tyler to your point heidi people always regret what they didn't do more than what they did because that you know, there's nothing more painful than what if. It's frustrating, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of comes back to um, I saw your CV of failures, and <laughs> I absolutely love that concept. You know, it gives self distance, but it also kind of makes the fact that rejection is a daily part of well, hopefully not daily, but is a part of life. It's kind of hard, I think, when you're just entering academia as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it certainly distance myself from taking credit for that concept that was um there's two people most credited with it um, melanie stefan and um johannes haushofer who each in their own way had been among the first to put out a pdf of their cv of failures and partnership with their more traditional cv and others and many others have done it since and i definitely took inspiration from that to you know to make it a web page right next to my you know, standard biography CV thing that you copy and paste and send off to every talk that you ever give. I did it because I think, and I've had more people coming forward now, and it's been really insightful to see just how, even although it's been popularised since around um, 2016, if you know, my own research holds, there's still a, a hell of a lot of people out there who have no idea of how to do that or that, it's even something that you can do or maybe even should do. I would even go further than it being part of the experience. In many cases, for many of the toughest things you want to achieve, it's the real fabric of it. It's, it is the, the canvas on which the entire process is drawn out. That was another thing that became so clear to me is that I had to you know, write about that very specifically. And one really amazing story that I had researched from a book I ended up working this links back into the family thing by the way so after thinking about you know family trees and stuff like that I'd come across this story of an author who had been rejected so many times that a photographer had done an entire project on this woman's experiences of going around London trying to get her work published. That's savage. Wow. <laughs> it's it's really it's actually really beautifully done if you look at the photograph. Mm. So this this woman whose pen name was Zora Rayburn tried to get published for over 30 years uh, and had no success. And when she did have success, it just happened to be during war years when the publisher who did take on her first book was bombed out of existence. For God's sake! I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I went down this incredible rabbit hole with a, a genealogist who I worked with who was incredibly talented at finding some of these documents that are not on the face of the internet. 
but have really given clarity as to what it means to fail and persist. And once I had found the depths of Zora Rayburn's story, I found more and more. And that's why I say that this whole concept of like failure is it can be more than a part of it. It can be the the entire thing from which you you learn. You know, in the in Zora's case, it came to the point where she thought, well, I'm a, I've been rejected so many times that I've I've got into this world of asking for permission for everything rather than you know seeking forgiveness and doing it on her own terms. And eventually she did and she self-published some of her work. That's one example where the repeated rejection over not days or weeks, but decades actually led to the beautiful realization at a time when self-publishing wasn't really a thing, that that could be a way forward. And that was the, the moment of enlightenment for her there was another way to do this rather than continue to collect rejection letters for the rest of our days. I think as well that story has just kind of piqued something in me so we're, you know we're, we're often told like you know JK Rowling for her sins she, she attempted to get published multiple times before she published Harry Potter and then she did Harry Potter and look what happened and it wasn't it magical and I think often like it's the human condition isn't it any bit of failure is then with yeah but look then they did the success at the end and it's this constant discomfort with just failing and being okay with that and it not being, well, you'll fail 18 times, but then you'll get a multi-million pound deal for something. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, yeah. no, you might, you might just get a tenner. The likelihood is that you'll, you'll fail and fail and fail and suddenly you might come up with a different idea that might be successful or maybe that one will be successful, but potentially not to the same extent as J.K. Rowling. <laughs> yeah. And that discomfort with failure is it's rife throughout life right oh yeah yeah it's actually as, as I'm listening to you it's actually making me again put a bit of a meta lens on all of this and if I can I dare ask you know you could think about this through the lens of what we're doing right now I mean you're you're building a business of your own that you know having done it myself I feel comfortable saying you don't know if this is going to succeed yet of course but you're trying your damnness and I, you know I, I love seeing a lot of the stuff that you put out because I think it just gives the really clear positive signal that this is a risk worth taking. So, But in seeing that, then the question comes to my mind of, if it does fail tomorrow, what have you learned that still has made it worthwhile? Yeah. I mean, what, what comes to mind? Like, what if, you know, I, I certainly hope it continues to go the way it's going and go to bigger and better places still. But if it doesn't, you know, what's one of the things that you would take away from having made company honestly I think at the minute it's enjoying the journey and that sounds so cheesy and I hate it with when anybody else says it, but all. I can say it and it's different but it's um <laughs> uh, <laughs> I get asked all the time because I'm because I split my life between academia and this business that I have that was that fell out of a conversation that someone annoyed me and therefore <laughs> I created this business essentially so most people will then come to me and go, so so when when are you going to leave academia or when are you going to stop the business? You know, it's it's one or the other. And yes. all the time I've kind of been like, oh God, I don't know. When am I going to have to make that choice? And I paid for business coaching earlier this year. Mm. And I went into this, this self-coaching and got to the point where I was like, you know what, I don't want to choose and that's fine. And I won't choose. So what's the issue? And I think it's it's more those learning that that series of decisions where I'm like, I'm just going to make the decision that I'm happy with and I'm not bothered if somebody else doesn't believe me or doesn't um, agree with it and that kind of thing. It's more 
like when you said I hope the business goes to bigger and better things I kind of shuddered and was like I really hope it doesn't (laughs) (laughs) happy with it at the minute I'm kind of good with it now but uh, well you know another way that is uh, you know in some way sustained yeah yeah I think uh, absolutely you know I had shudders of my own there to hear your realization that it doesn't have to be A or B but can indeed be A and B and I I, when I start I don't want to delve into this part of things because it's a story for another time but when I you know registered my first business and tried to do it whilst building a career in academia it got very close to the point with such skepticism from certain parts of my surroundings that I almost didn't have an academic job to go to after it because there was so many people who were entrenched in the idea of you need to go and be the CEO of this business or you need to be Mr. Academic can stay here and build your research career. It was always A or B for certain conversations. And uh, it took a very long time to get to where you are, which was to say that, you know, there are definitely ways and strong precedent globally for people being able to do both. And also the benefits of both. So, mm, yeah, you know, the, the business is sort of molding itself or I'm molding it. Take some responsibility, Heidi. Um, <laughs> along Perfect. With, along with um, my academic, that was some self-coaching in action. <laughs> I'm glad you learned something. <laughs> I know. Leona, if you are listening, I, I know the thing. Yeah, so being able to mould it at the same stage of my academic career to be like, look, I'm not going to launch any new products in the next six months because I've got loads of papers that I want to write or I've got grant applications that I want to put in. I'm going to focus on that now. And, and being able to sort of ride the roller coaster of it and make it opposite to how academic life is going at the moment. And it's not necessarily a, a measure of one's going to be successful for a certain length of time and one isn't. It's just the natural yes. push and pull of things of that's going to be busy, you know, July in a small business when things are starting to reopen after a pandemic, probably not going to be the height of sales. Let's get some <laughs> papers written. You know what I mean? Like those, the push and pull happens and also the the networking and the positive things that come out of both can complement each other and there's no reason why they can't i think it took an awful long time for me to say to people stop asking that question of a or b because i'm demonstrating that it's a and b yes and both both of those things are benefiting from each other so just stop asking the question it's not going to help either of us and you're showing that you can smash both smash maybe maybe a little far come on come on fine. use your <laughs> use your coaching manage, manage there use the coaching yeah no it, it's I just think as well like it's I don't have kids so I always have it as like well look you're going home to look after your children I don't want kids and I haven't got kids so let me piss about with my pin badges like <laughs> let me live man it's not do you want to go and you know, have kids and you've got, that's a huge commitment, but people wouldn't say, oh, when are you going to give up your academic career? Cause you've got a child now, or maybe they would to a woman, but potentially not. Uh, they did to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they shouldn't say that, but you know, it's, you don't ask someone you've just bought a new car. So why, when are you going to give up your academic career? Like, it's just, I just find the whole, the two things just completely different. Like it's something that I do in my spare time. It's a hobby and a business. And that's magic that it's made you know, it's, it's come into a business from a hobby. So what's the harm? It's also a case of our generation have always been told to have backups. And I say this to people all the time, like you you were always told at school, or I was anyway, what are you going to be when you grow up? But what if that doesn't work? Hedge your bets. Yeah, if you go to uni and you're going to do this degree, but what else could you do with that degree if that dream career didn't work out? 
and yet suddenly all of the you know people of my age and around our age are kind of we're multitaskers we're, we're multi-doers there's a membership that I'd signed up to age ago called multi-potentialites that's oh, yeah. what our generation are we're, we're multi-potentialites we that's a good TED talk for your yeah. show notes yeah, it's a fab TED talk, definitely. But it is, it's it's like, ooh, shiny, that, that sounds exciting. Why can I not go and do that as well? And being able to do those things. I just, to me, it's like all I can do is benefit all of the things that you're doing rather than it being a negative. There's a really good book to go along with that same theme that has become my Bible of sorts, a book called Range by a, a sports journalist called David Epstein. Uh, to takes that idea and of being a multi-potentialite and runs with it to talk about why those who are generalists in the modern era have an advantage over those who hyper-specialise. And it really shook the foundations, I think, of a lot of what is subconsciously or otherwise drip-fed to you in academia to carve out your tiny little niche you know, and play in your own lane, but not to go into anyone else's. And this book range entirely turns that on its head and to talk about the likes of innovators or Nobel Prize winners or however you want to define success uh, many of those who have done that but have delayed specialization until later in life because they've needed more time to play in different fields long enough to be able to build concrete bridges of ideas between worlds that within either uh, you know within one discipline it's completely obvious but in another it's completely revolutionary and, you know, those who are generalists struggle with that because taking that longer time, that longer gestation period to allow these ideas and experiences and other disciplines to form could be very detrimental to just having some money coming in, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very difficult, but I found it a revelation because, you know, others have asked me in the past, like, to you know, build on your own experience there of this A or B question on people waiting for you to fail on one side or the other you know, I've had perplexed looks at people saying you've trained as a chemist why are you doing this project in psychology as if you know you've done your x number of years doing these degrees you can't possibly want to do anything else or learn anything else why are you not just playing in that sandpit with which you've already spent a ton of time I just think it's really detrimental to even the quality of the science that comes out as well because as you were saying, point. The, the conference that you're in today, yes. you're looking at people playing with the same toys and how can we then figure out how to maybe use the way that they play with their toy in this sandpit or in that sandpit? You know, it's... Absolutely. We know that interdisciplinary research is a strength. We know that it, you know, there's evidence for that. There's evidence that shows that the more intersects that we have, the more impactful that research will ultimately be. So it's a really strange mindset that academia has us in that says actually you should just be in one lane because we know that you're you know the ref and all the rest of it being refable being impactful all these metrics are actually better if you're not in one lane and it's almost like the training hasn't yet caught up with what those generalists and what those people that have specialized later have actually shown us the training of, of being an academic hasn't quite caught up yet well you, you can certainly take that idea further to you know, qualify the whole thing of ref a lot of people will still focus very heavily on showing impact for an exercise like the research excellence framework entirely through 
how I impact your publication was and up and what journals it got into. But the exercise is becoming more sophisticated because in the same breath now, you shouldn't really just be talking about high impact papers, but many of the cases that we'll go into ref, we'll talk about the number of jobs that have been created out of entrepreneurial ventures that have come out from fundamental research. So talking about impact above and beyond anything that will end up in any journal, open or otherwise. It's economic impact, environmental impact. Indeed. It's even things things like mindset impact and particularly in like science and science communication, there's often those bits of interaction that you, you can't measure the impact of because it's a little seed that you planted. That the impact of the impact of that seed will be felt in 10 years' time. And suddenly you have to try and build that into a metric to be like, okay, and how will we measure you at the end of the year sort of deal? Mm-hmm. You're just thinking, yeah. We can't. It's not. I think we have to also try and let go as scientists to be like, look, our impact is not fully measurable. And why should it be? Because surely the things that we do should also have an impact on thoughts and feelings and hearts and minds and all this fluffy stuff the academic pathway doesn't really want to take into account in a lot of cases. And how on earth do you measure that? You know, an an impact on a patient's thought process in health sciences is really difficult to capture, whereas it's quite easy to be like, yeah, so I was cited 15 times for this paper that I published and this impact back to journal. But if that paper doesn't get to the people, it's, you know, those patients, for example, what's the point? Yeah, there's a way I find to try to generalise that so that you can, you know, in balance, show that there is some value on, you know, the traditional publishing side, of course. It's not without its merits, but those numbers are, those are just the easiest to capture. If you are going to challenge yourself to take your work beyond those papers, then a good question to ask is how can you capture all those things that are otherwise ethereal? How can you capture the things that are not traditionally captured? So, you know, how could you capture the thought processes of, you know, someone in a, in a clinic or a hospital changing as a result of some work that came from miles away in a small academic lab? And it could be that it's recorded conversations like this or it's making videos to put out on YouTube or something else. You know, you can, you can think wildly beyond what are the things that, commonly capture your attention for the metrics that drive your daily work yeah it's it's conversations as well and I think so a lot of the work that I do is qualitative which I love because it means I just I basically just do this but in a professional setting (laughs) Um, and I then send it to someone to then transcribe and then look at it for ages and pick apart everything about it but often that is expensive and it's time consuming and that is a really difficult metric to then sell to be like okay so I know that the paper number thing, great, working well, but I want to go out and have conversations with 50 different people and then transcribe all that audio and then analyse all of that data and then tell you exactly how I've made someone feel. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm guessing that that wouldn't sell in ref terms. (laughs) But there are examples of it now where the bigger funders in the UK are kind of asking, yeah, but how are you going to evaluate that? Really, how are you going to evaluate it? Rather than it being... I don't know, number of people that you've operated on or, you know, mortality levels or anything like that. I, all of these examples are from a health, health science perspective because that's where I'm based. But, you know, how many reactions are you going to do? Any of those sorts of deals, like those things are now becoming a bit more, they're a given and, and often the funders want more. They want something that you can properly evaluate, like the, the feelings and the fizzy things that you can go, okay, but did you make someone's tummy flip? 
you know, like that. And I think that's also part of this introspection that we've all done throughout COVID and all of these big life events, all that kind of thing. It all comes back to that of, okay, we need to sort of think of what we're doing. Did it work? Has it been okay? Probably not. And those those big changes might then have like little changes that come in them. So these little tummy flips that we we often miss in health sciences, maybe we'll get to catch them in later points because of what happened with COVID and those thought processes and seeds that were planted and that kind of thing. To me, it's kind of like a, it's a longer road that we need to look at to be like, okay, well, I'll give you my, my citation index or whatever, but give me 10 years and then I'll tell you what actually happened. It, you know, and it's more of a story. Um, you said at the beginning, you know, you're now pulling together all of those results from your study to write the story of the study. And it is, it is a story. It's, you know, it's, can't wait to read it. I know. It's like, no pressure. It, I, was at a, <laughs> I was at a conference once and someone said the, the plural of data is data, right? But the, the plural of stories is culture. I think that was someone from Care Opinion. I can't remember who it was. I will find it because I definitely tweeted it. So I will reference it in the show notes. <laughs> um, but it is, it's, it's the culture of imposter phenomenon that you're about to break. And I think that's really special. Like you've managed to run this long study with stories which is not, it's not an easy thing to do. Well, what certainly I would hard agree with, with what you've just said about qualitative research is the length of time and the depth of work involved in that. I stupidly tried to begin analysing that myself. Um, <laughs> drawing a, a wonderful, why did you do that? I, I do not know. That is why I no longer have any hair to speak of. <laughs> <laughs> um, we get that, we get that. But after I'd brought on a really wonderful research assistant um, who has a psychologist to help with it, that was about three to four months of solidly just looking at analyzing the the open text parts of the this research survey that we'd done. So the first part of it was the the clans imposter scores that we spoke about earlier. But the second part of it was, as you may remember, Heidi, these open questions to get more individual granular responses of why someone thought they might have felt like that, where and when it had come up and ideas of how they had tried to, to manage it and move on past it, if indeed they had. And there was, you know, a lot of the things that came out of that were some unsurprising things were the likes of those who cited an environment for having triggered such experiences, over half of them were within academia which sounds profound, but it's also got some network effects built into that because, you know, this is coming from, it started from me. A lot of my network is within academia. And no matter how fancy you try to be in spreading out that message to a broader number of people, you know, that can be amplified. So you, you are a product of your network for any survey research. And I, I know full-heartedly I'm, you know, preaching to the converted here. But that was um, one thing that came out that was perhaps unsurprising, but nonetheless valuable. But something that was altogether more surprising and that I hadn't expected was that there was a, a tangible subset of people who had just for a lack of awareness of it muddled up another type of experience altogether and, and reached out to see if it was an imposter experience. There were people for example who had shared stories that were better categorized as purely anxiety or post-traumatic stress even. So that you know part of the value of this that I'm really trying to draw out now is to work with that surprise 
and make it abundantly clear, not just this whole aspect of syndrome versus phenomenon, but really the entire umbrella of imposter experiences versus other experiences that are better managed or even treated in a different setting. So that's that was really unexpected, but it gave me more confidence at least that, you know, this is as much as I've become intimately aware of it, it I now know that it, there's definitely work to be done to make it clearer to a larger number of people. Yeah, 100%. I think that the difference between imposter phenomenon, imposter experiences and straight mental health experiences is very different. And I think often we can be gaslit in, in academia as that's, you know, that's my frame of reference, but we can be gaslit within academia to be like, actually, this is just your imposter syndrome. I'm like, no, that's actually anxiety or that's actually mm. depression or that's, that's actually harassment or bullying. It's a way to, to kind of discount it and be like, that's your issue that you need to deal with because everybody else here is fine. Rather than it being something like anxiety is coming from the experiences that you're having within academia. And that is the fault of the experiences rather than the fault of you. <laughs> um, and it is kind of this horrible balance where you're thinking, at what point do people, because obviously there'll be a lot of people listening and myself included that have mental health issues. At what point do you say you need to go get a treatment for that or, you know, learn how to clinically manage that? Or this is an imposter experience and it's it's a relatively normal thing that most people will have at some point within their lives. That's a really profound point and not one that's easy to answer. Maybe to say again, you know, I'd started by saying what is what is the imposter phenomenon not before yeah. saying what it is. And I think that's certainly a good reminder to me to clarify that, you know, everything that I've done and everything that I'm now trying to distill into this book is really within the frame of here are you know all the things within imposter experiences that I've learned that are worthwhile learning to manage, take responsibility for, and and have self reliance as you know part of your framework to deal with it. And it's you know it's just through that research that has become clearer to then draw the line between that you know the the value that I'm trying to bring in that book versus the things that can't possibly be covered by imposter experiences and should not be covered under that frame of reference. Yeah, it is. It's, it's that conscious should not. This is somebody else's territory. Yes. This is this is somewhere that you need to get help for. Yeah. And this book is not going to be helpful. <laughs> it might be helpful for other things, but it's not going to be helpful for that thing. Uh, yeah, well, that's, you know, it maybe brings several things full circle here, but part of the thing that has made it challenging and there, there are, several elements of literature precedent for this, but there are elements of imposter experiences which do overlap with other territories. So the whole, you know, the point of anxiety, you know, there's elements of that that are nothing to do with feeling like an imposter, but that can in some way be part of the experience of feeling like an imposter. So, you know, there's there's shades of grey there rather than blacks and whites here. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the fact that many of us will frame questions in the way that wants one answer or, you know, one variable that accounts for everything to do with the response that's been observed makes it very difficult to answer because more times than not, the answer is kind of. <laughs> yeah, it depends sometimes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that is essentially all of science, right? 
So usually we finish up with asking you for a top tip or a pearl of wisdom okay. for you to give our audience. So something that you wish you'd learned earlier, something that you use in your everyday life. Is there anything that you would like to impart on our listeners? Yeah, uh, maybe bringing it back to the comparisons thing. I've been so bold purely for you and your audiences to look out a short passage of my book that I would like to read for yes. you. Yes, of course. And I haven't, <laughs> I haven't read this out loud to anyone else, but I, I found this as being relevant to a lot of what I hope we would talk about and indeed we have in, in terms of the comparisons. So this is in context, uh, a small summarizing part of chapter seven of my book, which is on uh, comparisons. So I'll read that for you now. In many ways, the story of the imposter phenomenon is the story of social comparison. If you've ever felt like an imposter, I'd be willing to bet it is, at least in part, because you have endlessly compared yourself to the best in your business and the big shot a few ranks above you who is famous and showered with fandom. Their success seems so close, yet so far. There are myriad pressures, systems, metrics, and games that would have you, consciously or not, compare yourself to other people. The incentives of the game can make you lose sight of what matters most. You take on the game's definition of success and forget all about your own. You try to tick their boxes and not your own. Feeling like an imposter often arises from people trying desperately to find their unique place in the crowd. You feel like such a ripoff because you have so many opportunities to think of yourself as the small fish swimming into a shark-infested ocean. Stave off imposter experiences by finding your niche. Face uncharted waters. Don't be the big fish. Be the only fish. Comparisons between ourselves and our peers are unavoidable from war, from sociology, from psychology. Comparison is part of the human condition. Metrics of our classrooms and workplaces can drive these comparisons beyond a means of improving ourselves towards a deranged means of concluding that we are always underqualified. Understanding where a metric comes from, where it was born, can help us take it off the pedestal in which we've unconsciously placed it. Whether it's Michelin stars or paper citations or grade point averages, the story of why these numbers exist can take our minds away from them and onto the only game of comparison that any of us can ever win, making you now better than you then. Anyone else got goosebumps? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for allowing me to do that. Can we have an audiobook of your book? <laughs> yes, uh, please. That's... Please say that you're, you're doing an audiobook. I haven't actually mentioned it, but the book is called You Are Not a Fraud. And I. On this side of 2021, I'm putting out an advanced ebook release so that others can can help the broader part of the project. So that will be going out on a platform called LeanPub, which can give you the link to that. Yeah, definitely. We'll put it in the show notes. But in early 2022, I'll be putting out you know all the other media versions of it: the paperback, the hardback, and the Glaswegian intoned audiobook. Excellent. <laughs> we love a Glaswegian audiobook. <laughs> Fantastic. That's brilliant. I'm just going to get be the only fish tattooed on my forehead. <laughs> and I think I'll be all right. <laughs> I, I will 
curate images of such tattoos over the years to come, I hope. <laughs> all in a Glaswegian lil. <laughs> yeah, so what we'll do is we'll put all of the, lo- the links to whatever you send me in the show notes, um, including Twitter, website, book, the whole shaboodle. And yeah, if you would like to come back once the book has been released, we can. Oh, there's a little science code book club as well. Um, so if you want to come, we can do a book club for that too. I'd love that. Thank you. I'm so excited for this book to be released because I feel like it's just going to like everything that I've ever thought, but in a really eloquent way. <laughs> it's going to be like those things, those thoughts and feelings that I've had, but but in better English, essentially. It's going to be great. <laughs> and I can barely speak English, so that would be a, a really... <laughs> Big milestone in my life and career. So thank you again. No, I'm very excited for it. I think it'll be fab. Thanks so much again for having me. It's been a real privilege. I'll remember it fondly. Thanks so much. Thank for the you so opportunity. much.